Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with economist Robert Poland about inflation, its causes, its effects, possible solutions, where we stand right now, where we might be going in the year ahead. Think of this episode, if you will, as uh, Inflation 101. That's what I'm doing. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, science, health, politics, media, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. The podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E. M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, TerrenceMcNally.net. It occurred to me in preparing for this uh, episode, this question, was America so traumatized by inflation in the 1970s and early 1980s, which I recall was a result more than anything else of OPEC, the uh, uh, fossil fuel producing nations, declaring its independence from U.S. domination and raising fossil fuel prices. Was it so traumatized by that that it rejected Jimmy Carter, elected Ronald Reagan, ushered in neoliberalism, destroyed labor unions, allowed wages to stagnate for 40 years, and today has the Federal Reserve ignoring the latest trends, the latest, that is, month-to-month trends in prices and kind of ignoring the trends in profits entirely, to raise borrowing rates so high that we could be thrown into a recession. This time around, I see today's inflation, which is global, not domestic, and which is higher in many other economies than in the US, primarily due to dislocations of the global pandemic and the lockdowns that occurred because of it, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which uh, really affects global energy and food prices. Yet, as I said, the Fed seems intent on responding by sacrificing the personal economies of workers and their families to rein in inflation in Wall Street's economy. So today I'm calling on economist Robert Poland to school me and you on the subject, and I'm looking for answers to a number of questions. I'll throw out some of the questions I hope we get around to, though I will let the conversation go where it will, and we may not touch every base I'm going to mention here. What is the definition of inflation? Is there agreement on that definition? Is it accurate? Is it meaningful in the real world? What is the history of inflation and our responses to it? What what does it cost us? What are the solutions? What do they cost us? I understand it to be the primary goal of the Federal Reserve to strike a balance between inflation and full employment. Am I right? And am I right in observing that the Fed seems to consistently err on the side of tolerating unemployment in order to deter inflation? What are the particular causes of our current inflation? Am I right in the ones that I put forward? Uh, what are the latest trends the, that that is not going back a year, but going back the last few months? Are things shifting? How should we assess the Fed's response, the Federal Reserve Bank? Does it even have the power or the tools to deal with the current causes of our high prices? What is the role of windfall profits and price gouging on the part of corporations in inflation 
and in battling inflation? And are there other better responses we could be taking? Okay. I realize that's a lot to hope for. And as I said, I assume the flow of the conversation will dictate how much we actually cover, but let's give it a try. Robert Poland is Distinguished University Professor of Economics and Co-Director of the Political Economy Research Institute, P-E-R-I, Perry, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His several books include The Living Wage, co-authored with Stephanie Luce, Back to Full Employment, Greening the Global Economy, and The Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, co-authored with Noam Chomsky and C.J. Policronio. He's also authored and co-authored a number of reports aimed at moving things forward in the real world. Not just academic reports, but things that can be in the toolbox of people who want to make change, from creating living wage statutes to the economics of Medicare for all, and including the California Climate Jobs Plan. Welcome again, Robert Poland, to Free Farm, a world that just might work. Thanks very much for having me on. Let me tell listeners we're recording this conversation Wednesday, February 1st. First of all, how are you? We last spoke in August 2021. And in that previous interview, we were joined by Dave Campbell of United Steelworkers Local 675. And we talked about the California Climate Jobs Plan, which I find very exciting. And I find myself mentioning a lot when people sort of are bemoaning, wait, but are we going to get anywhere? It's a big problem it deals with, but I have found myself, uh, you know, I think about of the various conversations I have on the show, which ones come up when I'm in the real world. And that is one that comes up for me a lot. Um, I invite listeners to find that episode on their favorite podcast platforms or at my site, you know, look for California Climate Jobs Plan or Robert Poland. So can you briefly tell us about the plan, about this work that you're doing with various states, how it happened, what you learned, and kind of an update on maybe where we stand, and then we'll jump into inflation. Well, yeah. First, thanks again for having me on. It sounds like from the way you summarized that you pretty much know everything I'm about to tell you anyway. (laughs) So uh, I think, yeah, it'll be quite easy to go over things. Uh, Yeah, and it was great being on the last time with Dave Campbell, somebody I have a huge amount of respect for as a as a visionary labor leader, a labor leader who is trying to uh, combine the saving the planet with the well-being of working people, especially the workers who are whose livelihoods are dependent on the fossil fuel industry. And let me and mention that, one thing. I said Dave Campbell is with the steel workers. The steel workers uh, represent uh, a great deal of the oil workers in Southern California. That's right. And so, uh, yeah, the study that we did for California um, was an overall program to get California to achieve its emission reduction targets, uh, which is zero emissions by 2045, and to do it in a way that um, defends the well-being of workers, including especially the workers that are now dependent on the fossil fuel industry. So where is the progress? Um, Well, first of all, there is some progress nationally with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So we are talking about inflation. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but actually the Inflation Reduction Act is primarily concerned about climate issues. Uh, I guess that was just a moniker that they had to put on to satisfy 
Senator Manchin in West Virginia. Right. And that law, which passed, uh, I don't know, eight months ago, on the one hand, it is not, in my opinion, it's not close to being adequate to move us onto a stabilization path. On the other hand, it is dramatically uh, larger than any other climate initiative ever undertaken in the United States. And for that matter, pretty much anywhere, maybe, you know, there's some comparable programs in Europe, but nothing bigger. So it that is a major step forward. And then what I noticed in, just in the past week, in fact, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of the new investments and the support, the subsidized investments in clean energy are being targeted at red states, which is a very smart thing to do. Uh, because these are the, the states in which at least the politicians, I don't dare speak for the people living in those states, the politicians say, oh, this, uh, you know, the Green New Deal, it's a, it's it's garbage. It's a Marxist st- uh, conspiracy, and uh, it's not addressing the needs of the people in our state. Well, what this is showing, quite the opposite, that this is actually a real substantial driver of economic opportunity in red states as well as blue states. So that well, there is progress, and the more people realize that, the further along we can go. Now, on the specific issue that we talked about with uh, Dave Campbell, which is protecting the well-being of of fossil fuel workers through just transition programs, there is very little progress, uh, including in California. There's discussions. There's very high-sounding kind of (laughs) resolutions and so forth. But in terms of the actual implementation of viable initiatives, we, we aren't there yet. One of the things we tried to show in our study was that putting down a truly generous, robust program that that oil refinery workers can support because it will not entail massive loss of well-being on their part, which is the only kind of program that really deserves the term just That's right. It's not that expensive including in California, including everywhere. I mean, I also did one for the whole U.S. economy. And, you and, know, you've, and you've done other separate ones for a number of states. Now, including West Virginia, including yeah. Senate Mansion State. And, you know, what we found is just take the average for the whole economy uh, to give a program, a program that would guarantee new jobs, that would guarantee wages would not be cut, that uh, would guarantee the retraining as needed and so forth um, at a generous level. You know, it's as compared to the overall economy, it's less than uh, one one hundredth of 1% of GDP. So, you know, a bare drop in the bucket. And that's to give everybody, you know, everybody that loses their job in the fossil fuel industry, a guaranteed new job at their same pay, at least. Their pensions would be guaranteed. So this is all a matter of will. Uh, it's it's not even a matter of money. It's a matter of will, and it can be done. And with the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, I'm at least hopeful that people will start to see that this kind of initiative, uh, a real climate program, um, also will engender benefits uh, for people's well-being. 
Yeah, one of the things, one of the numbers that stuck in my mind was you said that the average oil worker, we're talking specifically California, this was this was the California plan, makes something like 135000 a year, while the average job they might get in clean tech uh, might make eighty five. Well, that's $50,000. But in the plan, and this number that you were just talking about, that one one hundredth of 1% of GDP, they would... Uh, be subsidized to right. their oil worker level for the first three years. Three years. Yeah. yeah. Now it's not forever, but right. So, we but, give but I imagine what's happening is once if you can use that carrot to move the transition, then other forces will come into play. And yeah, Dave Campbell's support and the support of other unions is critical here. That the you know, the eighty five thousand that people on average now. Make clean uh, energy sectors, um, that's not a fixed number. That's a snapshot for today. That can go up, and especially if you have union organizing and, you know, you have a uh, subsidized, government-subsidized programs that has to establish labor standards, good labor standards. So these jobs can become high-quality, well-paying jobs just as the fossil fuel industry jobs. Fossil fuel industry jobs were not good jobs. They were jobs that uh, the unions fought to make them good jobs over decades. And now we have the opportunity, especially because of the subsidies, just like in construction, in construction when you have a public uh, project, publicly subsidized project, you have higher labor standards. It's called Davis-Bacon laws. And that would be the kind of framework that through which we can establish the clean tech jobs as being equivalent in quality as the as the fossil fuel jobs. Okay, a couple of things that's I want to say, and then we'll move on. One is that that one of the things struck my eye immediately, and why I reached out to you and Dave was I liked the, the arena, I liked the findings, but also that this study was at least partially or wholly financed by the unions. Yeah, wholly. And that's been true in other states as well. Well, it, was, it wasn't always the unions per se, but in some states it was the unions. Um, other states it was some combination of environmental and uh, pro-labor uh, NGOs. Not yeah, no, I mean, but I just, I, I, I think when people nowadays assume that the whole country is functioning like the Beltway or the whole country is functioning like cable news to find that it isn't, to find that there are people working together because they are in the real world, the problems are in the real world, it means the solutions have to be in the real world, I think is something people can't hear often enough these days. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So, Let's move. And thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, you know, it's this, this uh, you know, even if the progress hasn't been made in the several months since our talk, there is something that exists now that when someone is at all serious and thinks the objection of jobs versus economy, green versus jobs is still real. There's something that someone could say, no, here. Look well, no, I think the idea has really certainly, you know, and again, the Inflation Reduction Act, in my opinion, is far from adequate. But the, uh, the the basic premises around which it was framed 
And uh, to his credit, the way that Biden pushed it was to say this is good for jobs. Yeah. And he's proving it. And he's proving it in red states. And and that's actually most of his, if I'm not mistaken, most of his little visits around the country now, especially to red states, Kentucky or West Virginia and so on, is to say, look what's what's happening. There is a green future for red states. That's right. For <laughs> there's West Virginia. Yeah, you name it. Yeah. Okay. So inflation. Just to start off at the baseline, what is the definition? Is there agreement on that definition? Is it accurate? And is it meaningful? Well, the basic idea of inflation is an increase in the general level of prices. It doesn't refer to an increase in one price. So if we're just, say, talking about the price of oil going up, uh, that we would not call that inflation. Um if every the other price is going down or staying flat. So inflation, uh, by definition, refers to a general increase in prices. Now, in reality, not, all, you know, not every price moves at the same rate, either up or down. So, uh, yes, we have different rates at which prices move. Uh, in the 1970s, as you mentioned, the uh, Organization of Oil Producing Countries, OPEC, uh, did succeed in raising the price of one thing, oil, uh, by 400%. This is a <laughs> massive, massive price increase. So, you know, if oil was $1 uh, in day one and day two, it's $4. That's what we mean by a 400% increase. Um, and because oil is such an important, critical thing that people consume and businesses consume, that 400% increase in oil pushed up a lot of other prices. And that's what we would call inflation. Now, there are issues on how exactly we measure this. And in principle, if you think about it, you say, okay, well, because we want to understand the overall movement of prices, we have to basically, we have to think of a basket of goods that people are going to buy. Now, then, you you know, once you get into the details, and I actually teach this stuff to PhDs, what goes into the basket? How much do we weight each thing that's going into the basket? And there are differences, uh, and there are issues that that, uh, you need to sort through. And two basic, and these are actually the technical terms that are sometimes used in the formal literature. We can think about uh, so-called democratic basket and a plutocratic basket. And a plutocratic basket, you would say, okay, let's see everything that anybody buys, everybody buys, and just divide it up equally. And that's our basket. That's plutocratic because rich people buy a lot more. And so the things that they buy get overly weighted in the basket. A democratic basket would say, let's look at the average household and see what the average household buys, and we'll call that our basket. So uh, in principle, we want to go more with the democratic basket to find inflation. In practice, it's, you know, there's complications. So, so there are issues, but that's that's generally what we mean when we say, what is inflation? It is the, the bat, we're looking at a basket of goods and services, and when the prices uh, associated with that basket of goods and services when they go up. And, and in this case, uh, 
if we agree that it seemed to be um, energy and food, which of course is the energy we use. I mean, it's all energy in a way, but energy and food were the two areas that seemed to uh, send things rising. Uh, and those are in the democratic basket, I would say. Yeah, they're weighted more in a democratic basket because rich people don't have to spend as high a proportion of their overall income on food and energy. They, they, yeah, they have to get their houses warm, they have to get the lights on, they have to buy food, then they have a whole lot more money to spend on whatever, super yachts. Right. Uh, but that's not the case for the average household. Right. By the way, article in today's LA Times that uh, our natural gas prices, which of course is what most people use for heat, um, and we've had a, a cold Southern California winter, uh, and it's been a very cold winter around the country, they went up 300% January over last January. They're expected to fall mm, a, a significant amount, maybe yeah. two thirds. But but my wife walked into me yesterday, my into my office and had our gas bill. And she said, is this real? <laughs> yeah, and right. I said, yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's inflation. Um, in terms of the history, um, I pegged <laughs> the trauma and the resulting uh, policy to the 70s, early 80s. My assumption is that it's happened probably cyclically over time. Did that signal a sort of change in how people perceive things and so on, that particular set of inflationary uh, actions back then? Or has the history been sort of, as I say, just kind of a cyclical thing and so on? Well, I don't know how far back you want to go in history. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a very good question because really until basically the World War II and the post-World War II era, we, there were, of course, bouts of inflation in the United States and other countries. But periods of inflation were basically matched by subsequent periods of deflation of general prices going down. Uh, and so that if you look at a very long historical trajectory, you don't have much movement in that long-term trend in prices. Mm -hmm. uh, periods of high inflation matched by periods of declining prices, deflation. Since World War II and, and the aftermath, we really have never had any sustained deflation. Uh, we've had changes at the rate at which prices are going up, inflation, but we've never had sustained periods of prices going down. And the reason for that is straightforward. Uh, you know, in the aftermath of the Great Depression and then World War II, uh, the role of government and economies became much bigger uh, in order to protect ourselves against another collapse comparable to the Great Depression. So anytime there is any kind of trend towards a economic downturn, severe economic downturn, government policies to more or less degrees, but government policies intervene and set a floor on the downturn in the economy. And so we'd never really experience deflation. That, that is exactly the case is what's happened um, during COVID. 
You're absolutely right. You know, the fundamental cause of the uh, inflation that we experienced the last two years is tied to the lockdown with inflation and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but it is also the case that had we not had massive government interventions in the United States and in all the other advanced economies, we would have experienced deflation. It was the government spending that did prop up the economy. And you, if you want to say, okay, that's why, so that's why we have inflation. Yes, to a certain extent, that's true. And But uh, every time one says that, you, could, you, you should say, well, thank goodness, uh, because otherwise we would have had a economic collapse comparable to, if not worse than the 1930s. I mean, after all, in the United States, in February 2020, right before the COVID lockdown, the unemployment rate in the United States officially was three and a half percent. By April, right after the you know initiation of the lockdown, unemployment two was two months. Yeah, was at fourteen and a half percent depression level, and it would have just spun out like that uh, as it did in the Great Depression. It was only government intervention that prevented it. So uh, we had we did have inflation. Uh, there's other factors, as you've mentioned, and we can get to. But it's true that the, the government intervention under both Trump and Biden, um, government intervention did prevent an economic collapse, and that did set a floor on the economy and thereby avoided a deflation. Very good. Let me tell people this is free form, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with economist Robert Poland. Um, and we're talking about inflation, um, its causes, effects, solutions, where we stand. And uh, you can learn more about Robert's work at the website of the Political Economy Research Institute, which is at uh, UMass Amherst. And that would the, the website would be P-E-R-I, P-E-R-I dot UMass, U-M-A-S-S dot E-D-U, Perry umass.edu. I have a, here a quote from Larry Summers, who, of course, is 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 a big voice uh, in all of this in terms of inflation and so on. Um, and he says, wages are the ultimate measure of core inflation. Most costs go back to labor. How true is that? And how true is it specifically now dealing with this inflation and this economy? So uh, on average, uh, labor costs, wages constitute 65, 70% of all costs on average. Uh, th that does not mean that they are the cause of inflation, certainly not the current inflation. So if we want to talk about the role of wages in the current inflation, I think you know we first have to frame it talking about historical framing. As you mentioned, the average non-supervisory worker in the United States is earning, on average, today, basically the same that they earned in 1973. That's 50 years. On average, and these are official statistics from the U.S. Labor Department. I'm not making this up. Right. And I think we, let's just, in case someone was in their car listening to this and they kind of glanced away. Could you say that again, that basically non-supervisory labor 
is making what they made in 73, which is basically when that last. That was when we had the first oil shock. And so now, yeah. And, you know, this is measured talking about inflation after controlling for inflation in dollar terms. It's higher. But after you control for what you can buy with a dollar, it's basically the same. Roughly speaking, it's about $53,000. That's what the average non-supervisory worker made in 1973, and that's what they make today. And one other point that I want to make is that that has not always been so. From World War II until 1973, workers' wages were pretty much in step with the economy. As the economy grew, so did wages. And their place in the economy sort of remained solid. And that was the era of the great American middle class. So I will adjust what you said slightly. So uh, the period that you're referring to, so from World War II, post-World War II up to, yes, the early 1970s, uh, average wages rose faster than average productivity, meaning uh, productivity refers to the average amount that a, a woman or man is going to make over the course of a day, their their production. What yeah, they what, produce, they, what they achieve what they for the company they're working for. Yeah. yeah. And so then the wage reflects how much you get paid for what you produce in a day. And there, yes, there are a lot of issues of how accurately these things get measured, but, you know, roughly speaking, the average living standard was rising relative to the overall economy. And that meant we were having uh, incrementally a more egalitarian society, greater equality. Uh, It's capitalist, yes, but is a more equal variant of capitalism. So to give you one basic indicator, around 1970, if the average worker is making, roughly speaking now to keep it simple, the average worker is making $50,000. The average CEO made $1.5 million, okay? Uh, so th- that's a big difference. That's a, t- a 20-fold incre- increment. Mm-hmm. Now, the average worker t- today, again, in round numbers, is making s- still 50000 but the average CEO's pay has gone up tenfold, from $1.5 million to $15 million. So if we want to talk about, you know, really the fundamental things that have changed in this society, and maybe if we really want to get this far right movement, what are they so angry about with elites? Well, if you had to pin it on one thing, that's what I would pin it on. Inequality. Uh, Yeah, the massive increase in inequality. Just to remind people, we said that wages have basically been stagnant for 50 years. Yes. CEO. And stock market and the wealthy are the ones who own most stock. People will say, oh, the stock market is democratic. Yeah. But most of the stock market is owned by the wealthy. Both of those, their their salaries and and their the stocks they own have gone up enormously. Tenfold. Yeah. So now we're going to look at the, our current moment and say the problem is wages are going up too fast and that's causing inflation. First of all, technically, that's not even true, right. which we can get to. But even if it were true, the context would be 
Okay, wages are finally going up a little bit after 50 years in which they haven't gone up at all. So that's the context. Now, what about the issue is are, are wages responsible for the current inflation? Well, wages did go up a little bit coming out of the COVID lockdown. Uh, wages have gone up four to five percent on average, but prices on average were, have been rising faster. So even with a four percent wage increase, you are worse off because prices uh, over the past year went up by say seven and a half percent. So you are worse off by three and a half percent. If your wage goes up by four percent and your basket of goods goes up by seven and a half percent, you're worse off. Right. So, so it, and that seems to me it makes two points, Robert. One is okay. Let's not um, think that workers are the cause of inflation because they're they're actually trailing inflation. But let's see that three percent difference. That's that's where I'd look for the cause of inflation. Exactly. So where is that coming from? Well, you already raised the basic structural factors, which are coming out of the COVID lockdown and then the war. And what has resulted from that during the COVID lockdown, there was literally a lockdown, a global <laughs> lockdown. Uh, that means things didn't get produced. So, you know, to take one very important, prominent example, we'll get to oil in a minute, but computer chips. Computer chips supply was heavily squeezed. So what that meant, for example, one important example here, I mean, is that new cars couldn't get built at anywhere near the rate that they had been because there's about 2,500 computer chips in the average new car now. Wow. You can't build them. So when you couldn't build new cars, and so there's, there's supply shortage of new cars, which meant that if people wanted to buy new cars, the prices would go up because demand was greater than supply. But even more so, people moved increasingly into the used car market. And then used cars, which they're already there. There are cars that are already there. Uh, used car prices uh, last year were going up by 40%. Why? Well, because there was the shortage of new cars. There was a shortage of new cars because you couldn't build them because of the shortage of computer chips. So this is what has been going on in the aftermath of the uh, COVID lockdown. Can I jump in one more point here, which is that it seemed to me reflected in the Southwest Airlines debacle recently, right? That they their method of trying to stay so tight to, to to spend as little as possible to produce their service caught up with them. Some of that also happened in, in creating those shortages, right? There was lockdown was one factor, but the other was that we're used to only producing what we need. And when demand fell, we didn't need as much. So we stopped producing them. And then when demand began to arrive, we had to gear all up again. Exactly. So yeah, look at the airline. Let's go back. If we can remember back two years ago, February 2020, pre-COVID, people flew on airplanes. <laughs> uh, that was a you know integral part of how our economy operated. And then you know by March 2020, no one was getting on an airplane. Uh, so you know uh, we may not like the airlines, but they were faced with a massive crisis. 
uh, you know, they had they had big overhead, they had costs. Yes, they had workers, they had employees, and they just didn't have any customers, like zero. <laughs> so yeah, so they contracted their operations, which effectively means they're contracting their supply. Now to get back to the normal level of operations, you can't do that at the snap of a finger. And on top of that, the losses that they experienced during COVID meant that they were going to be uh, excessively cautious in trying to return to normalcy. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, they, Southwest did it worse than other, other airlines. Uh, but basically that's what was underlying uh, what happened there with Southwest. Now, what also happened though, okay, oil. Okay, the oil companies also took massive hits during COVID because yeah, if, if the airlines aren't buying fuel, then, then you know, they, they're losing a massive, a huge amount of their uh, market, and then people aren't traveling by other means as much. Right, so they're, and, they're, and they're not they're not commuting to work. <laughs> that's right. No one's going to work. So then we open the economy back up, and then uh, the the oil companies had stopped producing. Uh, we open the economy back up, and there are oil shortages. So now the companies, they're not stupid, they see this, so they jack up their prices. So what really is, uh, not just the supply shortages, but it was the capacity of the big corporations, starting with oil companies, to increase their prices, to exercise their monopolistic market power. And so the uh, price increases, as we just talked about, it were much higher than the increases that workers got in terms of wages. And so the uh, Biden administration recognized this by initiating this idea of a windfall profit tax. That, and, and we've all read about it now. Over 2022, the uh, big oil, U.S. oil companies earned $200 billion in profits. Now, are you going to say that we want to cut work, workers? We want to raise unemployment? but we're not gonna do anything about the massive profits these companies earn from gouging, price gouging. They knew they could get away with it and they did. And I think the thing there is that you had a situation created by extenuating circumstances, huge ones, pandemics and wars, but then the tendency of business uh, to take advantage of increased demand which is what happened when the pent-up demand following the uh, lockdowns happened, to not only make what they're making with this new demand, but to raise profits. Uh, Katie Porter has that famous uh, viral video of her with her whiteboard uh, in, a sen- in, a, in a House hearing saying that it had been determined it was 40-plus percent of it was in profits. Is that pretty much agreed on that, you know, if not 40 percent, that a significant amount of 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 those price increases are are profits, not labor, not supply. And why isn't why doesn't that matter more? Why doesn't Jerome Powell talk about that? I or And, and the media had a, a, a session with Powell recently. I don't remember how recently, but the headline sticks in my mind in which he was not asked one question about profits. 
You know, uh, I can't really answer that so much. I mean, I mean, you've thank, uh, very graciously referenced our, our uh, institute here, Perry. We had a conference on this just uh, in December, and that was obviously a very strong focal point. So it's not like that nobody ever talks about it. We talk about it a lot. And then we actually, we have these, you know, technical papers, but then we had uh, non-technical summaries in the American Prospect, which is a very good uh, publication and widely read by policy wonk types in Washington and so forth. So it's it's there for everybody to see. It, it's not like, you know, any kind of deep, dark secret. But yeah, but so why is it that the Federal Reserve keeps saying, you know, we the labor market is still too tight. Uh, you know, effectively saying we have to raise unemployment. Why do they say it? I can get into the politics. Analytically, to say that is simply wrong. It's bad economics. Uh, what we should be saying is, yeah, what we have to control is the uh, windfall profits, the massive price markups, the monopolistic power. Uh, that resulted coming out of the COVID lockdown. Now, on top of that, yes, of course, you have the effects of, of the war. Uh, Russia and Ukraine both. Russia uh, is a major supplier of, of natural gas and oil. Uh, Ukraine is a major, and, and food, and Ukraine is a major supplier of food. And so, yeah, you're going to have a war that's going to create shortages. And those shortages means that we have a mismatch between overall supply and demand. And when there is more demand than what there is supply, that will tend to raise prices. What have we left out? What, what should people know that we haven't touched on? I've got a few other questions, but, but from your perspective. No, go with your questions. What other solutions could we be doing? Um, and my guess is that some of what we could be doing, other than the Fed just continuing to raise rates, with a serious potential of a recession out in front of us, what other tools are there? What other things would be doing? And I know some of them would be more long-term. And I will say one of them is we could have an actual antitrust policy in this country. Even um, uh, Ticketmaster and people who don't pay attention to anything else, the, the folks who buy tickets to concerts would agree with that. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm one of them. My granddaughter said she was dying for me to get her tickets to Taylor Swift. I was on the, I was online trying along with 19 million other people and failed to get tickets. I had to tell her and disappoint her. Um, she'll get over it. But uh, first thing, I think, is to recognize that actually inflation is already coming down quite a bit. Uh, so if, if we look at so the, the numbers that are reported in the press are looking at, say, last month relative to uh, January of uh, 2022. And then what we've been hearing over and over is 12 months relative prices. But what's happened in the last six months is really inflation is basically at its long-term trend. It's at, at about 2%. People don't realize that because you keep getting this news that inflation is at six and a half, seven percent. It is if you measure the last 12 months. But if you look at the last six months, it's at two percent. 
if you look at the previous six months, it was at 10%. That's why it averages out. Right, of course. Yeah. So uh, that's the first, and that's really critical because if if we're saying the cause of the, the main driver of the current inflation was the COVID lockdown and coming out, well, we are coming out now. So these supply shortages that built up as a result of the COVID lockdown are getting uh, cleared. Uh, the, the supply chains are getting restored. And many people said, well, that would happen. Uh, it, and it is happening. So uh, we aren't seeing any kind of serious inflationary pressures on average at present. So uh, what, and let me just jump in for a couple of things. One, the real time for this conversation was six months ago, but <laughs> leave that aside. Um, but it, it seems, I mean, the metaphors are obvious, right? This would be like putting a Band-Aid on something after it's healed or or putting, you know, uh, dieting after you've lost all the weight you want to lose. It's it's just, it, 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 but it's serious because it, yeah. it affects the families of this country and the world. Yeah. And so in that series of articles that I mentioned in the American Prospect, my colleague Jim Boyce has a very good, simple article that everybody should read. Uh, it's very easy. The point is very simple. And he's he's just saying, how come we're measuring only this year on inflation as opposed to things that are happening more recently? He said, the equivalent is if you like right now at this very moment sitting in Amherst, Massachusetts, it's 20 degrees. OK, uh, but what if you said, uh, what's the temperature in Amherst? Well, the average over the year is 52 degrees. Well, who cares about the 52 <laughs> degrees over the last 12 months? Now, you may say we don't just care about the fact that it's 20 today. Well, let's look at, you know, the last two weeks or our forecast for the next two weeks. But, you know, what is the appropriate time frame for identifying our relevant period, our trend? And for this, you know, massively important, as you said, decision on what to do about inflation, it is critical to recognize that the, the driver was the COVID lockdown and the war. And the, at least the COVID lockdown factor is working itself out. And to, so to respond to an effect that has already worked itself out makes no sense. Uh, that seems to be, you know, huge. Uh, in other words, when I'm asking you what are possible solutions to this current inflation, one of the things is, well, is there that much current inflation? And as you're saying, it's back down to kind of its normal average. Yeah. Um, so what should I be asking instead of that? Should it be what are the solutions to kind of the last year's thing? Or should we just say if they would just look at the current trends, we'd be asking other questions and solving other problems? Well, that, but I think it's certainly fair to ask. And then these other types of solutions, as we've been discussing, taxing windfall profits, um, antitrust, uh, putting a cap on monopolistic pricing power, markup power of big corporations, uh, the energy sector. If we transition to clean energy, we will get rid of this problem of the oil companies having all this power, which of course is why the oil companies fight it. Uh, and it, it, you know, it, it isn't totally irrelevant that this law, the Inflation Reduction Act, is called the Inflation Reduction Act because transitioning to a clean economy, clean energy economy, does mean lower costs for energy because to generate a kilowatt of electricity 
from solar and wind right now is half, half what it is for coal or, or natural gas. So uh, naturally, we don't have the supply. Exactly. How long has that been true? That's within the last few months or? No, no, it's been true for a couple of years. Wow. And again, I'm I'm not making this up. This is coming from the U.S. Energy Department. In fact, it came from the U.S. Energy Department when Trump was in charge of the U.S. Energy Department. So these are real numbers. By the way, I like the way we've looped back to your, the clean tech jobs yeah. <laughs> stuff at the start. It so, does all yeah. fit together. And, you know, the other part, in my opinion, of building a, a clean energy economy to eliminate emissions is to raise efficiency standards. So how far you can go with your car or how, you know, if you have an electric heat pump, how hard is it to, to keep your house warm or cool? Those efficiencies also mean lower costs because you're consuming less energy to get the same result. What about so, housing? Housing is the single biggest factor in the official consumer price index. It's about uh, 35%, one third of everything in the consumer price that index. That basket we were talking about. Is the basket is housing. There are issues in how you actually measure housing, but we'll put those aside because I know we're running out of time. Yeah, we are. So if we talk about the things that matter in housing, uh, heating oil, uh, electricity for lighting. Uh, these are the big factors in housing. Transitioning to a clean energy economy would stabilize those prices. Now, it wouldn't. It obviously doesn't happen overnight. This is things that's happened over years. But if we recognize that the inflation bout, this huge inflation bout that we've experienced, is basically over, and so the solutions that really work with time. We now have the time to implement them and so that we can build an economy that is more resilient against the kinds of shocks that we experience due to COVID and the war. Okay, and one other thing I heard there was that perhaps housing, uh, and I think we've seen this happen a little bit, but perhaps housing, like oil workers, there needs to be some transition thinking Right. In other words, maybe people need subsidies while we're while we're increasing the store of housing available. Right now, supply and demand says housing's rare. So prices, whether it's rents or or buying, are, are high. Perhaps there has to be some subsidization Absolutely. there while we transition to a bigger house stock. Well, you know, one of the biggest forms of subsidy that came out of the you know the U.S. economy in post World War II was exactly for housing. Uh, because we had controlled interest rates. Uh, the interest rates were capped by law. Uh, and that was the, really the basis for building the housing stock, effectively building the American dream suburbs with subsidized housing. Now that goes away. And so, you know, when we had the financial crisis in 2007 and nine, the major driver there was turning housing stock and mortgages into speculation. So instead of having a controlled, regulated market for financing housing, we have a Wall Street-driven casino determining how much people pay for housing. Okay, I think we got to bring it pretty much to a close. I also, I'm going to mention one thing, which you don't have time to even reply to. An interesting uh, article out of Robert Reich in the last couple of days, in which he said that, you know, 
the taxes of the wealthy used to help pay for the government. Now, the government deficits created by lowering the tax on the wealthy means that the government has to borrow. And you know who they're borrowing from? They're borrowing from those wealthy people whose taxes went down. So now instead of paying taxes to support the government, they are being paid interest on the loans they're making to the government. And it's just like you go, it's kind of mind blowing what's happening. Yeah, that's true. Robert, thank you so much uh, for today. This was, you know, getting down into the weeds a bit, bouncing around, but that's what's going on now. Um, and, I, and I really appreciate it. You can learn more about Robert's work at the website of the Political Economy Research Institute, P-E-R-I dot U-M-A-S-S U-M-A-S-S dot E-D-U. Um, and that uh, American Prospect uh, was their most recent issue? Well, it's online. Okay. Thank you, Robert Pollan. Okay, great talking to you. Okay. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, terrencemcnally.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website. If you want to get my weekly email announcement, in which I'll tell you who we're going to talk to, what we're going to talk about, and usually links to 10 articles to flesh out that conversation, email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at macmac.com. Or you can also sign up at my website to subscribe to the podcast, most of the podcast sites at which it occurs, or at my site as well. Check out the podcast. It goes back many years, includes Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, you name it. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence, M-C-N-A-L-L-Y-T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and all of you, most importantly, please share this podcast widely. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what role do physicians and other healthcare professionals play when it comes to advocating for a single-payer healthcare system? What are the main goals of Physicians for a National Health Program, the only single-issue physician-led organization advocating for Medicare for All in America? To find out, we spoke to the new president of PNHP, Dr. Philip Verhoof. Verhoof is also an adult and pediatric intensivist and clinical associate professor of medicine at the John A. Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii. Manoa. So welcome to Code Whack, Dr. Verhoof. Thank you. Let's talk about Physicians for a National Health Program. It was founded in 1987, and here we are 36 years later, still fighting the commercialization of healthcare. Would you say the prospects for PNHP's vision of a truly equitable healthcare system for all have improved since then? 
I wish I could say that we were closer now than we were then to achieving a universal healthcare system. If you look over these last 35 years or so, we've seen attempts at getting a universal system up and running only to be completely squashed by corporate interests. So um, you might recall Hillary Clinton actually pushed a universal healthcare system that was just squarely defeated by everyone uh, at the time in the early 90s. We tried as an organization to get single payer, at least at the table, for the talks around the ACA back when Obama got elected and we were roundly shut out. You know, we've had a bill introduced in Congress now for every Congress for the last 20 years since Representative Conyers introduced the first one in 2003. That was a bill that we helped work with his office staff on to be the aspirational single payer bill that we want to see. And yet here we are, since PNHP's forming, we've got more and more privatization of Medicare out there. And the forms of Medicare Advantage and this upcoming ACO REACH program, these are all ways that the federal government is actually taking Medicare and putting it in the hands of private insurance companies without holding on to it themselves. And so in many ways, you might argue we're in worse shape now than we were 35 years ago in spite of the efforts that we have made on this particular front. Yes, that's a little depressing. It is totally depressing. But you know what? We're not going to stop fighting, right? We want what's best for our patients. We want what's best for our our whole country. You know, it's hard. Every year I update my slides for PNHP for the talks that I give, and you just watch how much more we spend than other countries in the world. And then you watch our inequities get worse, and you watch our life expectancy go down year after year, and you say, golly, how is it that we just keep making things worse in spite of ourselves? But on the other hand, if we weren't fighting this fight, it would hate to imagine where things might actually be if we didn't have folks actually protesting and fighting some of these really awful moves that will only hurt our American citizens. Right. Good point. PNHP membership includes doctors, other health professionals, and even members of the public. How does PNHP recruit doctors? So we spend a lot of time just trying to get the word out there about what PNHP is, who PNHP is, and what single payer is. And so I can talk about my own personal experience. You know, honestly, I started getting involved when I was a resident. And then as I continued my training and became a faculty member, I was frequently giving talks to physicians to educate them about our American healthcare system and about ways that we could change it or make it better. I've worked with student groups. I've worked with community groups where I've gone out and talked about what this is. Because, you know, it's interesting. In 2016, single payer actually made it in onto the main stage. As Senator Sanders was in, engaged in his presidential campaign, we started talking about it. And a lot of people had no idea what it is. And, you know, we at PNHP said, hey, we've been talking about this for 25 years. Come to us. We will educate you. And so that's a big part of what PNHP does. But I think one of the things that we see now is that we won't achieve single payer unless we get more healthcare professionals, more people behind it. And so a lot of the work that we're doing now is really targeted at, at expanding our membership, expanding the knowledge base among professional organizations and state medical societies. So we're making a real concerted effort to shore up our ranks a little bit, to get the buzz out there. When you actually pull physicians, 
Americans, the vast majority support single payer. So of those that are out there that know about it, they like the idea. We just need to basically get those folks motivated and marching and supporting and and actively working with us to make this a reality for our country. What do you see as the organization's biggest challenges today? The private insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, for-profit hospital corporations, they have pockets that are so, so deep. And they will use those resources to influence legislation, to influence legislators. It's not that we're not going to win, but we're not going to win by outspending them. We have to get single payer by organizing all of the physicians out there to say, look, we're not going to participate in this system that actively hurts patients, that actively leads to thousands of deaths per year in this country simply by virtue of not having health insurance. Do you have a personal story you'd like to share about our WAC healthcare system? Contact us through our website at heal-ca.org. Find more Code WAC episodes on progressivevoices.com and on Nurse Talk Media. You can also subscribe to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar.